0: microphone check one two cc hello and welcome cc hello and welcome X one two three four five six she sells seashells by the seashore she sells seashells by the seashore there we go rolling Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 54, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at the slash academy. Today marks the last episode of 2017, which feels pretty strange to me to think that another year has already gone by in TDL. Albeit this is, I suppose, the first full calendar year as, as I've been doing this podcast since June of 2016, which I suppose is part of what feels strange to me. Well, on the one hand, it feels like 2017 went by pretty quickly, it also feels like I've been doing this podcast a heck of a lot longer than just a year and a half. There was a time where 54 episodes, that would have seemed like a pretty big number, but it doesn't feel somehow that big to me today. It feels like we should at least have broken the 100 mark. I suppose by the time 2018 is wrapping up, you know, we'll be at that number, But but man, that seems a long ways off. So I should probably just sit back for a moment, breathe, and perhaps reflect a little bit on the past year that was the documentary life. Yeah, a little breathing, reflection, and appreciation. It doesn't seem like such a bad idea, does it? So when we come back from a quick break, not unlike what we did last year with our end-of-the-year wrap-up, we'll take a look back at TDL's 2017 by listening to some of the more memorable moments that we had in our shared conversation with the Doc Guest segments. And then we'll wrap up 2017 with a look towards what we have in store for the podcast in 2018. I'll also be making an exciting announcement about the documentary life that you will definitely not wanna miss. And it's something that Steph and I have been looking forward to sharing with you for a little while now. All of that and more coming up in just a few moments. So 2017 was a pretty darn good second year for the documentary life. Our listenership's grown dramatically since that first year, and maybe more importantly, the amount of engagement that's taken place not only between myself and listeners of this show, but the amount and quality of engagement that has happened amongst the Doc Lifers, it's been astonishing. And it's been exactly what I've always wanted with this show. A few months back, we opened up the TDL Community Facebook group, and the response has been nothing short of terrific. Doc lifers are joining on a daily basis and they're sharing their thoughts not only on podcast episodes but their experiences and suggestions with documentary filmmaking as a whole that's really been something to see blossom in july inspired by your positive feedback the increase in listenership and the demand for more doc life content the podcast went to a weekly format and we haven't looked back nearly doubling our total output of the show in half the time We took our two types of shows, an episode and topic led entirely by myself, and an episode that was a shared conversation with a Doc Industry guest, and we combined these two into one show. We also added a Doc Life or Community Question of the Week segment that would include thoughts and feedback from you, the listener. Many times over the past year, the show's content, whether it be a specific topic or a guest on the show... It's been driven by you guys. Again, this is something I've been striving for with this show, this idea of direct engagement with you guys so that you can tell me how I might best serve your doc filmmaking and doc living interests and needs. Of course, due to the, the fairly dramatic change in format and output of episodes, we've gone from, from, from hearing from one doc industry guest per month to four. I'd be lying if I didn't say that it was pretty challenging early on securing four guests a month, not to mention producing the four episodes, but that's gotten more streamlined since, I'd say since this past fall. And the quality of guests that we've had on this show, wow, that's that's actually really been exciting to see which I suppose is its a nice segue to what this show is really supposed to be about, this year's past guests, and some choice segments with those guests, of which there, there could have been a handful from each and every guest that we've had on the show in 2017, believe me. But to, to keep this show a respectable size, I've hand-selected some of, of mine and your favorites to share with you again. And for those of you who haven't heard all of this past year's shows, this will give you kind of a taster of what you may have missed, and you'll surely want to go back and, and check them out afterwards. It's also worth noting that this look back on 2017, if you will, it's really only a compilation made from the doc industry segments. In the interest of time, I've not included my solo segments. You hear me talk enough as it is, so, so I'm going to save you from having to, to hear me repeat myself. So why don't we begin taking a look back on the year in TDL that was 2017. The importance of music, i.e. score, to one's documentary film has often been mentioned on the show, but it hadn't really been explored to any full extent until episode number 37 when I had on recording artist Peter Broderick. Peter is a multi-instrumentalist who's been writing music since he could remember, and over the past decade, he's become a pretty sought-after composer for films, including fairly recently having done some work on an M. Night Shyamalan film. In this first clip, Peter talks about how before he actually started doing score work, he set out to make a record that sounded like it could be used as film score. And sure enough, that's when filmmakers started to take notice. I've also pulled a clip where Peter talks about how to best approach a potential music composer for your own film. This clip will be followed by discussion of of how a director might divest themselves of their temp music track to allow themselves to be open to the music created, the new music created by a film's composer. How did you first get started composing for film? Did someone approach you? Was it something that you actively sought out yourself? How did that first happen?
1: Almost all the projects that I've worked on were, were people that found their way to me um, mm, nice. but it's, it's interesting because one of the first records, solo records that I released um, was a record called Float and and that Float's album, great, I
0: love that album it's, it's, it's
2: wonderful
1: it's, it's primarily instrumental piano based compositions but if you listen to it it it, it comes across at least I, I think, and this was my, my intention for it that it would come across as a soundtrack in a way. There's a melodic theme there that kind of winds its way back. You know, it it recurs throughout the duration of the album. Right. And that's something that happens a lot in, in film music. Uh, and I I had been inspired by a lot of film soundtracks myself before yeah. I made the record, but although there's no there's it wasn't created for a specific film. I really wanted it to sound like it could be a soundtrack, and I think you know when people heard that they 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 picked up on hey this 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 could be music for a film and absolutely and that was when people started reaching out to me. Um, and some people have just taken those songs and placed them in a film, and others have asked me, "Hey, can you can you make a new score tailored to this specific picture?" So, and yeah, ever since those records came out, in yeah. um, yeah. 2007, eight, I've, I've I've had a steady stream of requests for that kind of thing.
0: Say someone has hired you, Peter, and it's a yeah. first-time filmmaker. And they've hired you on a project and you've created some music and, and, and that this filmmaker feels like, wow, this is, this, this is, I mean, it's great, but this isn't where I saw the direction of this going. It it really Mm -hmm. doesn't fit the, fit the mood for these particular scenes. What's the best way, how would you recommend having that experience? How would you recommend we filmmakers? How do we tell you guys this? what's the best way we can communicate that? Right. well, you know, it's 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 always
1: helpful to be constructive. You know, yeah. Um, what really doesn't help is to just uh, shoot things down. <laughs> right. It, and, and and oftentimes that's the impulse mm. when you feel like a great resistance to something. If someone sends you music and you're like, oh no, 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 no this isn't it. My best advice yeah, is right. to sit on it for a day or two first. Yeah. Think about, um, think about a more constructive way to approach it. And 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 uh, you know. Keep in mind as well that maybe this comp- particular composer doesn't, th- maybe it's not the right fit. That's always a possibility too, but, mm. but, but, you know, you wouldn't want to threaten something like that, you know, like you need to fix this or else you're not the right composer. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, I guess, you know, just be true to yourself and, and try and try and um, have a, have a respect for what the person has taken time to, to make for you, you know? Because uh, that respect is is what's going to foster and inspire them to to do good work for you.
0: Well, and it's funny. I mean, I mean, you know how this is with music, Peter. Uh, how many times if we have we heard a piece of music in our lives and maybe it didn't initially grab us, and then we heard sure. it the next day sure. or the next day after that. And suddenly it starts to kind of find yeah. its way into you. And then you yeah. and suddenly you love it at some point. Right. And, and I think that that can happen with, with our Absolutely. films too. Right. I mean, like you said, we, as the filmmakers, we've been spending so much time with this footage and whether it's shooting it, whether yeah. it's interviews, whether it's editing the footage and, and we have our sort of our own vision and our own ideas and we see it and hear it a certain way. And you're bringing, oftentimes, we're bringing the composer in so late in the process that I think it's a very natural thing as the film, for the filmmaker to maybe not initially feel connected to the music that's sent to them. But as you're suggesting, Absolutely. if you give it some time, and it really does need some time, then yeah. make your assessment after you've given it some time and worked with the footage for a bit.
1: Absolutely. And that, and that, that right there, Chris, is key, I think. Just what you said it, it, oftentimes on first listening, something just kind of goes in one ear and out the other and if if you can if you can get past that initial um rejection or maybe mm. uh whatever a defensive just, just, feeling to it the defensive feeling if you can get past that you you really might surprise yourself sometimes if you just give something a little bit more of a chance, watch it four or five times, show it to a couple of friends. Do some A B with the original whatever temp music you might have had. Yeah, right. And the new thing, and and yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I really that that's something like I would be so happy with for people that I'm working with if they can um, if they can experience it a few times before getting back to me with feedback. I think that'd be really helpful.
0: Renowned war journalist Nate Fayer was on the show back in episode 32, and this show was definitely a bit of self-indulgence for me. I, I've always been in awe and in some ways very inspired by the work that war journals have done, in particular those during the time of the Vietnam War, and I'd also been well acquainted with the work specifically of Nate since I began doing doc work in the country of, of Cambodia back in 2004. His audio is not the greatest, but the content of the conversation was some of the most fascinating that we've had on the show. Nate really started about 10 years after the Vietnam War had ended when he decided to live and work in the jungles of Cambodia in hopes of one day landing a much-coveted interview with one of the most infamous men on the planet, Pol Pot, the architect of the Cambodian genocide. And of course, he eventually would land that interview. I'm going to first share with you a moment where he talks about what it means to be a freelance war journalist and the unfettered access to important stories that the vocation once gave you. After that, I'll go right into a clip where he he shares an anecdote about his decision to become the only person to ever refuse a Peabody Award after being wronged by Ted Koppel and the ABC News Corporation.
3: I can tell you that my uh, uh, whatever modicum of Success I've had as a journalist hmm. uh, has been derived through living vicariously through other people's stories. Stories, it's, wow, it's not yeah. it's not me. It's uh, the people that that I'm able to access and uh, then bring to the attention of readers or viewers or listeners. Hmm. Uh, and, so yeah, that's that's uh, that makes absolute yeah, sense. Yeah. That that's the beauty of it. I means some punk kid like myself being able to go and, and meet with kings and presidents and guerrilla leaders and bad guys and good guys and uh, and they say, okay, well, we'll talk to you since you're a journalist.
0: <coughs> when you broke uh, when you broke the news story to the world your interview with Pol Pot and when you had footage of his sort of mock trial right at the hands of, of, of sort of uh, fellow Khmer Rouge uh right. ABC News and Nightline got a hold of some of the footage right and that became of course a part of, of your story um, and an unfortunate part of course because of the controversy surrounding that maybe you can um, what would be nice is, is if you can give us a little bit of context there what happened of course. Ted Koppel got a hold of a hold of the footage. Right. And, and then it mysteriously was dispersed to others throughout ABC. And from there, suddenly the story took its own so, sort of took its own turn. And, and a story that you had broke suddenly became ABC's story. Yeah.
3: I'd be happy to. This was a top world story for a number of days. I had the first pictures and the first video of Paul Hot that, uh had been seen in over 20 years. But what was remarkable was that a a freelancer, I owned all the rights to it. Uh, I hired my own video team to come with me because I don't know how to, I'm not a cameraman. Uh, right? uh, And I took the the still pictures, but even that I'm not a photographer, but I am a a writer. So, uh, but at the end of the day, I, I came out with it. And it was a zoo because I got over 5,000 telephone calls and messages Incredible. within a couple days before my story came out. I was offered ridiculous amounts of money from uh, outfits that I didn't trust, including Murdoch. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, I, you know, I turned down uh, the high, highest, highest bidders. My story was committed to the Far Eastern Economic Review, and, and I did that. I didn't. They offered me more than my usual rates, uh, and I, I turned it down because I knew that this was it wasn't just journalism, but it was a, a little snippet of history, mm. uh, and I had an obligation to do this properly. Right, uh, and uh, so I, I I wanted it published there because I knew they would do an excellent job, which they did. But it became you know journalists are journalists. Uh, the word got out before the story was published that. I had interviewed Paul Pot and yeah. I had pictures and, and video, uh, so I was contacted by pretty much everyone on the planet. Uh, Ted Koppel, who uh, that, at the time Nightline did, you know, really quality stuff.
0: Oh yeah, in, I remember it well.
3: America. And uh, uh, so he flew out to Bangkok. He wooed mm-hmm. me, saying I was the second coming of Christ, and uh, and so on and so forth. And and back then you made deals based on a handshake and a man's word of honor, uh, you know, because in the news business, you've got to get the story out. Uh, so you don't have time for these lawyers to come in and do their thing. You know, mm-hmm. you just, you know, you take someone's word on it. So uh, they had the rights to uh, North American video rights only for, for Nightline. But once they got a copy of the tape, uh, they uh, and uh, the transcripts that I've made, this is all in Khmer, which is Cambodian language.
0: Yes, yeah, right. Uh,
3: They distributed, uh, they took still frame grabs off of the video, still pictures, slapped ABC uh, copyrights on them, distributed them to, you know, AP and uh, every newspaper they could think of. uh, And they distributed the video worldwide. And they they gave the transcripts to people whose front page above the fold New York Times and every other news outlet in the world before I even got my own story out. And their strategy was simple. It was, okay. promise. This is what the lawyer, ABC's lawyers told Koppel. They said, look, promise the guy anything he wants. Just get a hold of the copy of the tape and then we'll eat him alive because we'll bankrupt him. And we will, you know, we'll make his life miserable if he objects. Uh, And uh, so that's pretty much what they did. Uh, you know, right. Ted Koppel is actually a uh, you know he was he was an excellent journalist, but at the end of the day, he was a pimp for his corporate masters. And uh, but that's how it works in the big business of, of media. I did object uh, strenuously to yes. say the least, but the ABC corporate machine they uh, didn't. So humongous that you know they don't even know what the left hand or the right hand is doing, and and they applied for major awards, you know, with me as the ABC correspondent, and then won them,
0: which is amazing, right? I mean, the (laughs) the prestigious Peabody Award, of course, uh, and at which you um you were the first ever at the time to turn down the award, right? uh, Yeah, and
3: I I'm pretty sure the last ever too, and I (laughs) I don't think there was anyone who supported my decision to do it, but
2: I'm I'm very
3: happy with my my decision. Koppel called me up from New York after they'd refused to talk to me for nine months or pay me their initial written agreement, and then I won the Peabody Award, and then he called me up saying, you know, uh, kind of, oh, congratulations on winning the Peabody. I said, fuck you. Where's my money? I'm going to the uh, Peabody Award, and I'm going to tell him. And pimp ABC is. Now you guys are a thief and insult to the institution of journalism. Uh, and uh, uh, so within like 24 hours, they sent money to my bank account. But, but I but I showed up in New York at the Peabody Awards. Anyways, so I brought in a, my written statement of rejection of the award and tapped Ted Koppel on the shoulder from behind. And he hadn't seen me since he showed up in... Uh, Bangkok, wow. uh, you know, promising me the world, and I swear his face turned white. I, I, I'm sure he thought I was going to punch him out, which, you know, that I don't punch people out <laughs> uh, except in writing, uh, and, uh, uh, but I handed them the thing, so, uh, he, you know, they basically thought I was insane, uh, and didn't. <laughs> they knew that, there's, that I was a loose cannon. So he had to get up on stage and acknowledge that I'd rejected the award.
0: Uh, oh, in the
3: mean- I see. In, in the meantime, I, I was escorted out by <laughs> security guards.
0: Not long ago, I had the distinct pleasure of having on documentary filmmaker Lourdes Portillo, a woman who's highly regarded in the doc community, where she's been working for 40-plus years. Our conversation was held on the eve of her acceptance of the IDA Career Achievement Award. It was episode number 51, and among the many topics discussed was the importance of mentorship to a documentary filmmaker. I'd like to play that clip for you, followed by a section where Lourdes talks about the importance of of knowing our film's story intimately when setting out to raise funds for your films.
4: Well, I think what I've learned, I've learned from all my crew, They were my mentors. There wasn't a mentor, a documentary, documentarian mentor specifically, but I had, you know, crew members that were more senior in their experience that always were willing to teach me. Like I have uh, Vivian Hillgrove, who's an incredible editor. right you know, that I've worked with since I made La Ofrenda the, the Days of the Dead. Yes. I made a film about the Days of the Dead with her and that was the first experience and it was a very illuminating relationship. Yeah. You know, seeing film from the from another perspective. <laughs> and uh, from the sound man like Jose Araújo, you know, his experience they gave me all this. is Their experience, they gifted it to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that is, that's amazing to hear. And it, and it falls in line with precisely how you described really your entrance into the documentary world with your first film, Las Madres. You said basically, yes. you know what? I just decided, you know, my, we decided we were gonna make a film, a documentary film, and we just learned on the fly. And so that it makes sense, your your crew, the people that you worked with would 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 function yeah. as mentors.
4: They were my mentors. Yeah. They were my mentors and they were my wonderful, generous, beautiful mentors that I'll always be grateful for.
0: Wow. Incredible. What, what have you taken from, that, from, from those relationships now um, as a mentor yourself? I, I, I'm sure you are a mentor to many people. And so how do you treat that relationship? What's your responsibility now as, as the mentor instead of the mentee?
4: Well, I take it very seriously, because any one of them could be telling the story of the century, you know? Wow. So I I always, I I focus a lot. First of all, I I notice, I think a lot about documentary, and I think a lot about, you know, what kind of uh, schooling they're getting. Mm. And sometimes they want to make a film, but they don't even have the story. You know
0: I think that happens more often than we'd like to admit i, I absolutely i yeah. see that happening all the time
4: you too yeah and and yeah. what are you
0: doing to work with work around that issue like how, how do you work through that with people
4: i just say no I mean I'm your mentor you come to me and yeah. you tell me the story I want to hear what you want to make this film about mm-hmm. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, they're ready to fundraise, and they don't even know the story. <laughs> yeah. I worry. Right, right,
0: right. But they're they, my children. That's right. Absolutely.
4: One of the things that I always urge, like my students, is to have a story that you can tell. Go around telling your story before you shoot it, so to see if it's if it's interesting. Oh. You know, yes.
0: Yes. So you're going around and you're dialoguing about the story with, you know, friends yes. and family, work associates. And the idea here is you're kind of not only practicing perhaps what will be the story later on, but you're really kind of finding out if there is, if there's interest in this, if there's a story there that's interesting to be told via film.
4: Exactly. And whether you're telling it correctly, mm-hmm. you know, is it going to be interesting? Is it going to be visually interesting? All that. I think that that's something that people don't think about very much. They want to do a documentary and they embark on it without having really repeated the story to themselves or to someone, you know, that can give them some interesting feedback.
0: Wow. And and, and I think that plays well also. I think that we're, you know, and, and this will p- perhaps be a little bit later on in the process. Maybe it's once we already, maybe once we have agreed um that yes you know this is there is a story here and it's worthy of pursuing exactly. in the film but like i think we explore that also when we're we're doing our grant applications when we're doing our crowdfunding campaigns because because you're doing you're you're doing the the, the actual practice practice of you're writing about the film constantly and so when you're doing things like grant applications and you're and you're constructing your crowdfunding campaigns um you're constantly having to tell that story. And I think that helps us define it. That might be a little bit later on in the process, but I think they're still connected there because you're, 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 you're dialoguing, whether it's verbally or through, you know, uh, writing, um, you, you're finding out what that story is and really, um, yes. if it's, if it's a worthy, worthy story to tell.
4: Yes. You're finessing it. You know, you're, you're refining it. Hmm. You're, you're listening to yourself tell it. You're imagining it, and you're constructing it mm. in your mind. And it's so cheap. Yeah, <laughs> you <know>? right, right. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's the best way, I think. You know, that that story has to be very, very um, fine, finely tuned. Yeah. In order to embark in actual shooting. So, and then when shooting, when you start shooting, things happen where. It might change many things, hmm. but it doesn't change what in my in my experience. It didn't change the backbone of the story. Hmm. It changed certain elements, but I always had that story. This is about my uncle. This is about yeah. you know the mothers of Plaza de Mayo. This is about the girls in in Juarez. Yeah. So. Um, I think that that's a beautiful practice, the orality of your story. Mm,
2: mm, mm, mm.
4: Lourdes,
0: when it comes to—and and, and, and you did this in with your first film, right? When you when you, when you set out to make Las Madres, you, you said, you know what, Let, let's go try to get some funds via the grant world. Um, obviously, you have plenty, plenty of experience um, with that ever since those early days. What can be some? Can you give us some, 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 advice for those of us who are first starting out to um, enter into the grant applications world? What are some? What are? What are? What's a thing or two we should know about that that uh, we might not know about?
4: You know, the most important thing is, as I always say, as a story. If it's a compelling story, if it's a new story, you know, uh, have it together. Mm. Know where you're going, how you're going to do it, how you're going to present it. Know everything about that. And all that work is mind work.
2: Mm.
4: You know, it's you can do some research, of course, but, you know, it's all... I. It's To me, documentary has a lot to do with orality, you know, and that's very important. So once you have it in your mind that it's clear what you want to do, it's easier to convince somebody to come along and give you money for it. Yeah, right, right. If
0: we ourselves are unsure um, of our story, then that doesn't instill confidence in other people to want to uh, come exactly. aboard that as well. What about what about the film festival circuit? What's a piece of advice you can give us about that? Because obviously you're well acquainted with that world as well.
4: Yes, well, it was at a certain time, but I think uh, you know, the internet has kind of changed it
0: Hmm.
4: you know there's ways that you can enter film festivals by paying a fee and they try for you and i don't know i don't do it anymore so (laughs) you know i don't know how it goes but uh i think it's good to meet the people if they come to your city to meet them you know from the film festival tell them your story what it is that you're doing and you want them to see it you know I think having connections, making direct connections with these people is really, really important. And following through, following through and keeping them abreast of what you're doing.
0: Okay, hands up. Who here is living a documentary life? Would you say that you are? What does it mean to live a documentary life anyway? Well, we'll happily give you our definition. To us, living your documentary life means that you have crafted your lifestyle in a way such that you are able to make the documentary films you choose to make without it negatively impacting other aspects of your life, be that financial, your immediate relationships, or personal wellness, and furthermore, through the creation of your art, your existence is sustainable, creative, and fulfilling. Would you say this describes you? If not, is this something that you want for yourself? It was what we wanted for ourselves, and it took us quite a while to achieve it. Truthfully, there were many times we didn't think we'd make it at all. We were living in a world that was reactive rather than proactive, and it was costing us greatly. If any of this resonates with you, we'd like to help you find a better way. Because once we were able to honestly say we were living our documentary lives, we could look back and see what had gotten us there, and we knew we had to share it with others. We broke it all down and put it into Living Your Documentary Life, a program that helps you to craft your own lifestyle, relationships, and mindset in ways that empower you to make your best documentary films. You can find out more at thedocumentarylife.com doc yourdoclife. And speaking of story, we had on Academy Award-nominated screenwriter Daniel Rame on the show back in episode number 33. In this first clip, Daniel talks about why sitting down with one's interview footage and and watching it all the way through before even making a, a single paper or assembly edit, how it can be the key to finding story in your film that you never knew existed. This clip is followed by his explanation for a workflow for writing one's script for their documentary think it's easy to think that you can simply go in with your camera and you spend an hour or two or three during a day and you've got your you have your interview with your main subject and you've got your story when in and and you can speak to this that it you'll you're never going to get to the heart of true humanizing of your subjects unless you're spending it takes an extraordinary amount of time to spend with your subjects does it not
5: oh yeah no question that's that's for sure in this type of type of portrait film no mm. question you know patience too and oh, yeah, and, right. and a willingness to be you know one of the techniques that i advocate that i appreciate in terms of documentary filmmaking is at a point in your principal photography before mm. you dive into editing before you even commit to a specific story mm. to watch the footage uh or certain selects from the footage sort okay. of lined up, let's say you've shot, you know, 30 hours, you take five of those hours. I organized, in this case, Harold Lillian's life and careers chronologically, watched it, and what I came away from that experience of watching this assembly cut, five-hour-long assembly cut, with no music, no narration, no graphics, just the footage. Hmm. I wanted to see what the footage, what was in the footage, without any um, sort of pre- Sort of con- conceive, you know, because I had my thoughts prior to that. Uh, but let's see what we really got. Right. And what I learned from that experience was that the deeper, more interesting, more emotionally compelling story was Lillian's inner story. Uh, and it it superseded anything that else that I, you know, and and how she overcame childhood trauma. Yeah being raised in orphanages and had this kind of amazing life where she was a sort of feminist self-made woman, very witty, very funny, great storyteller. Like all these things sort of took me by surprise. And I said, okay, let's take, this is so beautiful. Let's start to f- follow this anyhow. So I think that's, that's really important in documentary filmmaking to be open to, uh, um, to different, different paths in terms of storytelling.
4: I brought my stuff around to all the different studios. But one day I get a call, are you the guy who did these drawings? And I said, yes. And he says, can you come to work Monday? I said, yes. Well, I never did those drawings. Whoever did those drawings now may be selling insurance. Basically, the
5: the, the challenge is,
2: Hmm.
5: how do you tell a story that's more or less chronological and not bore the hell out of the audience? (laughs) Right. with with a structure that sounds like this happened, then this happened, yep. then this yep. happened, yep. then this happened and while it's interesting what's happening, it's not dramatic. You know, so Harold Lillian was really a two-year process from June 2013 saying I want to make this movie to May 2015 mm-hmm. when we premiered it at the Cannes Film Festival. Okay, okay. And that timeline was like a couple months of interviewing and then the rest of it was editing and continuing to film at the same time. Mm. But during that time I had to pull the brakes like about halfway through a year into it because I realized I really didn't have the kind of wherewithal from a, you know, from dramatic construction. So I really paused and restudied drama to a degree and what makes, you know, how do you create a scene or create momentum that sets up a question and then you know answers the question rather than this happened it's more like it's a different kind of construction it's this happened therefore this has happened or this happened but that also you know it's sort of you're creating more of a dynamic structure and inter interconnecting uh, pieces that that aren't are more. A, structured on a dramatic emotional basis.
0: But, but then how do you, how do you apply that? Once you, I guess, once you had that realization a year in, what, what changes did you make?
5: Well, in terms of workflow and why do I, why is there a step called the script writing process? Yeah. I would trans have all the material transcribed, all the interviews transcribed. Yes. And there was this, I wish I had a photo of this, but there was a point where Jen and I didn't even use the editing software. We did a paper edit. A paper Like, edit, created right. a real script. And I would actually have this system where I would take all the transcripts, put it into final draft. Yeah. All the dialogue would be like, the have the same formatting as a script. hmm And instead of um, a slug line, which is, you know, uh, interior, exterior, the location, time of day, I would create the subject heading. Okay. And we would, with scissors, tape... <laughs> paper everywhere. Yeah. These transcripts would start to create a construction and intertwine very carefully, intertwining the the, the family story, the, and I'm about to answer your question, yeah. the career story, the inner story, the personal stories, and find the tension between the themes right. that start to create a narrative spine. And fundamentally, without kind of giving away the ending, arriving at how I'm going to end the film about yes. halfway through. Yeah, that yeah. was a true moment of inspiration for me. But even listening to Bill Moyers in conversation with Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The great Joseph Campbell. And <laughs> and and Joseph Campbell said to Bill Moyers at one point, there's a moment in, in, in all of our lives, not just superheroes, but in the everyday person that we truly become the hero of our own life where that mask is removed. And you start to think about real people, but you take the story of real people, just like you would in a fiction film, but you're not inventing it because you're using the substance of real life Mm. and creating the mythology, if, if you will, of their life in a structure, in a narrative structure that is not that different from how one would approach a fiction film. The only true difference is that we're not making this up. We're making up the structure and that's where the real work comes in, not in the new in my opinion, of a great film, not in the nuance, so to speak of you know how sophisticated the editing is and how the images pop and the yeah. photos pop and all that fancy stuff that right. you know moves genuinely moves the film become but becomes more of spectacle related than emotion related. So I like to get inside the characters and really tell the story from their emotional point of view. And I wanted to create a film that puts the audience in the shoes of Harold Lillian and Mm. goes takes them on that journey. So that's the big question mark, how do we do that?
0: In July, we ran a special two-part series on the film festival. The special began with episode number 28, where we held conversations with a film festival's director, in this case, Lyndon Stone of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, as well as filmmakers who had their docs being shown at the festival. The intent was to give an insider's view of a doc film festival from both the perspective of a festival's director as well as the documentary filmmaker. We start off with Lyndon talking about what he's looking for in submissions to MDFF, as well as a behind-the-scenes look at the selection process for their film festival.
6: It comes back to storytelling and how they've told their story, how they've used like cinematography, how they've edited the film, how they've um, used subject different kind of uh, mediums to, to tell that story. It really comes back to, to the way that they've told the story and how effectively they've told the story. But in terms of themes and motives, you know, We've got such a broader range of documentaries. you probably had a look at the program there, Chris. Um, mm-hmm. We're not kind of prescriptive or have any kind of – we're very open-minded, you know, with, with what comes through the door. We try to yeah, look at like... – different um, things, um, but things that would, you know, automatically kind of, you know, uh, I guess kind of – we'd decline a documentary on would probably if it's kind of, you know, freely available um, for the competition right. uh, online or if it was um, for the feature films. Documentaries, and also if it were, um, it's already had like a theatrical bow in in Australia, uh, and we yes. do, do get a lot of people approached by that. You know, can will I be able to do that? And Because of our terms and conditions, we were unable to do those kind of things right. um, for the feature documentaries, okay, um, for the competition. But uh, yeah, uh, as I say, we're very open minded. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, so Lenny, give my listeners, if you could give my listeners a glimpse into the film selection process of MDFF. And I mean, literally starting from the moment you or someone from your staff sort of receives the download of the film or the packet, or are you also receiving postal packages? What's the process someone's film goes through from that very beginning up until the moment of selection? Through selection, I should say. We
6: have uh, six to eight curators. Um, majority of those are for short documentary. What we uh, what we tend to do is we have a curation form uh, where we have uh, different aspects that we look at in terms of uh, the film, and then we grade the film. And then towards the, the end of the film, uh, uh, the festival submission period, we look to kind of to rank them and look to kind of look for themes and motives and to to put them uh, all together in terms of uh, the showcase for for the uh, the festival. So it's yeah you know, so we have volunteer running and it's it's you're so humbled by people that you know are holding down jobs or studying <laughs> and they uh, you know do a lot of reviews and stuff like that. um you know. I, whether they do, you know, a hundred reviews, or if they do, you know, twenty reviews in a month, you're just you're just humbled by what what they can do and when they can do it. So you know, I never like, you know, hey, you've got this deadline. That's up to me. So I make sure that you know all the deadlines are met and stuff like that. Okay. But um, it's hard because it is a volunteer run run film festival. But you're just right. thankful for the help you get and when you get it, you know. So um, yes, yeah. but uh, got some great curators who've, uh, as I say, hold down jobs who study and find the time to help uh you know curate um documentaries i think it's a great job because as i say they get uh, access to documentaries that sometimes they'll be the first people in australia to see them stuff That's from right. south by southwest right stuff from doc new york city i think it's really exciting i think it's a really cool job yeah
0: and so at the point are you whittling down a number to say you know 50 films and then you whittle it down to 20 films and then do you guys all get together um in a room and, and do you have people pair off and sort of advocate for the films that they would like to see in the festival? How does it work towards the final selections? How do you get to that? What does sure. that look like?
6: Yeah. Well, we look, we look at the grades in terms of what they get. Um, and then what we do is with this particular senior curators, we go through like a quality audit with them. So I, I'll go through them, uh, with the final list. And then we'll, as you say, like you say, mm-hmm. we whittled those down, uh, to the final selections, you know? So, um, yeah, so that, that's basically um, kind of about what we do in terms of the process. So we grade the, the documentaries and then we have this kind of final kind of quality audit where we go through um, as we move towards the, I mean, at the end of the day, the final core is mine, but what we do mm-hmm. is is to kind of get those, whittle them down to the festival. Yeah, it's, it's a, it takes a whole year, the whole the whole process and stuff like that uh, from woe yeah. to go. Um um, there's some amazing stuff out there. It's hard sometimes to turn down stuff that has premiered at, at Hot Docs. I, I have had you know, filmmakers, you know, um, you know, approach me in the premiere yeah. at Hot Docs. If we just don't have the capacity at this stage, Correct. that's why i was a little bit interested in going online because um, yeah. you know I could help more filmmakers to showcase in Australia. But again, the thing is, a lot of people, is I'm applying because I want to share it with an audience, not to be online. You know, right. so it's interesting to try to you know to strike that balance with, with the filmmaker. Um, yeah.
0: Included in our two-part special on documentary film festivals, we also spoke with filmmakers who have had their films accepted into a festival like MDFF, including well-known Kiwi filmmaker Costa Boats, who among other things talked about how film festivals can be instrumental in your career as a doc filmmaker.
7: Talking about film festivals, it's um, it's a fraught topic because uh, in my own experience I've had some success and I've had moments of sheer utter frustration. Without a film festival, I think in today's Um, market in today's world without getting a good film festival premiere it's really really hard to justify yourself either to yourself or to the world festivals are that important they you know they provide um, a focus of attention they can bring you kudos um, and not just kudos but, but actual you know interest from people who can show your film, who can spread it further around the world, who can maybe, maybe not that often, but bring some income to you as well. Right. So that's all. All becomes possible with a with a good festival premiere.
0: Much more than simply personal validation.
7: Well, I got to say, I, I I spend a lot of my life and career uh, just getting by on personal validation <laughs> rather than external. <laughs> so you it's and me to be both. <laughs> But you know, when when I got a film into Venice, for instance, that was a wonderful moment. It kept me going for years. And yeah. uh, more recent times, I had a premiere at Toronto. I've had um, films premiering at Hot Docs. These were significant, important life events for me. And actually, you know, they 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 give you a career. They give you um, they give you external validation as yes. well as the internal. You've got to have both.
0: Did you attend Toronto or Hot Docs?
7: Yes, I did. You did. And, uh, and what was that experience like for you? Fantastic. Mm. Um, it was nothing like, I mean, at Toronto, we showed the film called The Last Dogs of Winter, which yes. um, was actually set in Canada. Mm. And at the end, we got a standing ovation, and I had people coming up to me, one guy with tears in his eyes, saying, oh. thank you for showing me what it means to be a Canadian. I thought, well, okay, I wasn't expecting that.
0: Oh, that's pretty um, heavy. Yeah, absolutely.
7: Uh, um and, of course, they wanted to know, what, what is a New Zealander doing in Canada making a movie? Sure. <laughs> I, I asked myself the same thing. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, you get drawn to certain topics. You get drawn to certain subjects and characters, most of all. Mm. And then if I can see a way to make the film, I'll just move heaven and earth. And most of all, I just want to make films that are uh, makeable independently which means that if i can do it on my own credit card i'll do that rather than go and put out the begging bowl for money and here's the problem though when it comes to film festivals it's very very hard certainly in my own experience to get noticed by a festival if you're flying your own little independent pirate flag you know like if if you're just mr mr indie guy with a little orphan film from who knows where wellington new uh, zealand i'd Sort of come to believe that they don't even look at them.
0: Hmm.
7: Whereas if your film has a national badge on it. Now the film I showed in Toronto did. It was funded by the New Zealand Film Commission. And there's an uh. instant impact there which means that when the Toronto selector comes calling, yes. that's where they go. They go into the Film Commission office and they look at the Film Commission funded stuff. They don't, they don't um, go and solicit and say, hey everybody um, on the other side of the country that It didn't have film commission funding, Um, you know, show us what you've got. They don't do that. They'll they'll go and look at the the films which the funding body recommends. Look, I mean, a film can cut through. I I had a film called Candyman, the David Klein story, which was about a um, a Los Angeles candy inventor. And that didn't have New Zealand film commission funding. Yeah. And that made it into hot dogs. Um, They saw it at... uh, a festival called Slam Dance. Yeah, of course. And, Very well known. Um as it turns out, I spoke to the selector at Slam Dance. I said, Why why did you go for our film? And he says, Well thing is, I've got this relationship with my dad, and as soon as he said that I knew what the answer was. Now in in that film, it's about a guy who invented the Jelly Belly Jelly Bean and, and um <laughs> he's a he's a wild sort of guy and et cetera, et cetera. But it's also a father son story. Uh
0: uh-huh. So that and spoke to with, the um,
7: Yeah, yeah. And with Last Dogs of Winter, uh, again I spoke to the selector and she'd come over to New Zealand and the film Commission had showed her shown her a number of films. Yeah. I said, "Why don't you pick this one?" And she said, "Oh, oh you know. well, she's a dog lover. <laughs> she's crazy about dogs. So when she saw our poster, she just went, "Oh, wow. I oh. I guess she was just open open to it." Look, sometimes it's as flaky as that, really. Uh, and and you know, you, you think to yourself, Well, I think I made a good film but right, there's but so many good films out not there. Sure. So many good films. <laughs> Look, it can be any number of things that, that a selector can go for. But the, the de facto truth is if you're talking A list festivals, if you're talking the Venice, Berlin, Cannes, uh, Toronto, you know, the 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 big important festivals, their selectors go out into the world and they are getting recommendations from the big funding bodies that's right right and uh, the other thing is you're not going to see any festival in the world that's going to show more than say two or three maximum titles from any single country right so so the thing is if you're from New Zealand or Australia or Britain you're not only up against the rest of the world you're up against your fellow filmmakers sure. as well so if, if in say New Zealand there's 12 to 15 feature documentaries made here every year well only one or none <laughs> <laughs> but certainly no more than two of those pictures are going to be selected for uh, Toronto. And uh, there might actually be you know, a good half dozen of really good films. Uh, my advice to people, and I wish I'd taken this advice with mm. active kindness, is sure you can set your sights high, high and you can dream of Cannes and Venice and all the rest, but you've got to mm. be realistic, really. Mm. And um, the fact is, if, if yours is a little indie film without some strong really compelling connection inside it some strong x-factor it's not going to get selected by those big festivals it just won't but there are a lot of other festivals and a lot of festivals that can do you um do you good
0: and finally i'd like to finish up this look back on 2017 with another one of my favorite conversations with the doc filmmaker It was with first-time filmmaker Jen Brea, who when unable to convey the seriousness of her symptoms to medical professionals, she decided to show them by making a film about her journey. The result is one of the more deeply personal and eloquent documentaries to come out of 2017, which is why Unrest has been shortlisted for an Academy Award. I would begin with Jen talking about the power of documentary to make people understand not only her story, but the story of so many others who also suffered from this often undiagnosed condition known as myalgic encephalomyelitis.
8: That's my husband, Omar. I met him when I was 25. (laughs) We were both at Harvard, getting our PhDs. Three months later, I knew I wanted to marry him. I mean, sure. We all know nothing lasts forever. I just thought I would have more time.
0: A lot of what you have said there resonates with me on on, on, on some personal levels, but it also resonates with me having just seen the film, and it makes me think of, of something you say towards the end of the film that, that really has, has stayed with me, and it's you can disappear because someone's telling the wrong story about you yeah and jen you're gonna make sure that no one tells the wrong story about you
8: yeah no yeah that was that was definitely the instinct and I, and I think um in that moment when i was diagnosed with conversion disorder there is a certain amount of power that a doctor has um in the sense even though like you go to 10 doctors and you get 10 different diagnoses you know like um uh, i mean doctors don't agree and everybody looks at you from <laughs> the lens of where they sit um, in that moment, right there's like this hierarchy and this this kind of power differential and there's very few spaces in the world um, anymore where where we kind of have those types of relationships and it, and it, 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 it in our culture and it, and it was just such a strange thing to suddenly feel like this person has so much power over the ac- access to the care that I can receive and he, what he writes on that chart is going to follow me for the rest of my life. A lot of this film, making the film was about talking back to that moment and um and trying to in some ways um wrest back that control over um you know who who gets to be the storyteller here who gets to right. interpret the experience and um and and I I I think that so often patients you know it's like your patients are in some ways like supplicants or you know like, like and, I, and i think <laughs> a different way of thinking about it but it, it it um it's uh it was yeah it was definitely about being able to to tell a different version of a story and to tell the story that really millions of people have been living from their perspective
0: Jen, do you feel like your, your illness has, has, this is part of the journey for you. This has led you to documentary filmmaking. Does that occur to you?
8: Oh, definitely. I mean, I I've done so many different things and, um, uh, kind of leading up to this point, I feel like everything I've done is in some way prepared me. And I think, um, but you know, I, so I was, a um, you know, I was, a uh, a writer and a journalist. I've been kind of like an event planner. Um, I was a PhD student. Um, and, uh, but everything I did kind of, something was always missing. And I, I, I think for me, I need to, you know, I, I I've written the first third of so many <laughs> books and never finished. And I think I, I'm actually not somebody who's most creative in isolation. Like I want to be out there talking to people. I want to be collaborating with other artists and, um, and I think for me, this is the the one thing that I found that uses all of me, that calls upon all of me. And I love, you know, I also have, you know, I took photo in, in high school and had been, you know, a kind of amateur photographer my whole life. And so it's like, I love telling stories with images and I love the challenges of like being in the field and trying to figure it out. And I love, um... So I, I love producing, and I love fundraising, and I love editing, and I love distributing. Like, wow, I, I love wow, all wow. of it. And, I, and, I, and I've always been looking for something that engages both my head and my heart, something that is intellectual and also deeply human and creative, and allows me to talk to people. And I, 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 I had no idea that that's what this was. And so I feel really grateful to have, in some ways, you know, um, fallen into this path. Um, And found as an answer to a very different kind of problem, a very personal problem, found this, this medium and this craft that I love.
0: So that wraps up our look back on 2017 in TDL. Of course, that's, that's truly just a smidgen of what actually transpired in our podcast over the past year. I mean, so much rich doc filmmaking and doc life content. So many amazing doc industry guests were on the show. I could have easily strung together another four or five hours of clips from past shows, believe me. Now, if you've heard something that you liked in this 2017 retrospective, I do hope you'll go back and listen to some of the full episodes, which can be found at thedocumentarylife.com. So as promised earlier on, I'd like to now share a little bit about what will be coming up in 2018. In an effort to always try and evolve the show, we'll be making some minor changes with the format of TDL nothing drastic certainly subtle but, but i think it'll have a nice impact on the overall feel of the show in the past we've had three very distinct segments to an episode one topic would be led by myself then there would be the dock life or community question of the week followed by a shared conversation with a dock industry guest now oftentimes my topics might be entirely independent from what we would discuss later on in the dock industry guest segment Moving forward, we're looking to make these episodes a bit more fluid, a bit more connected so that when you go to download a given episode, you know that the episode will primarily be about one particular theme or topic. An example I can give you might be from an episode that will be coming up in January that's going to be devoted to the genre of music documentaries. I'll have a segment that will kind of briefly intro the topic, and then that will be followed by a conversation with doc filmmaker Ian McFarlane, whose film The Godfathers of Hardcore is a documentary that follows the two frontmen of legendary New York hardcore band Agnostic Front. Again, the idea here is to give you, the listener, a more coherent idea of what a given show will ultimately be about. Another adjustment that we'll be be making to our programming will be the segment that was formerly known as the Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. This will now simply become Doc Lifer of the Week. And it will no longer just be an emailed question from a listener. It certainly could be an emailed question or, or suggestion, but it, it could also be a social media post by a doc lifer. It could be a, a moment where I highlight a Doc Lifer's documentary project. It could be a brief conversation with a Doc Lifer. Whatever it is, it's a short segment that will be about you and your journey with documentary filmmaking. Now, it won't necessarily occur each and every week, but it is going to be a segment that will that will run fairly regularly on, on the programming. I'm especially looking forward to seeing how this segment develops over time. So those are some enhancements that you can look forward to as the documentary life moves into 2018. I'm really proud of everything that we've done with the documentary life so far, and I'm equally proud and excited for what the future holds. With that, I want to sincerely thank you for coming on this TDL journey with all of us. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, without you, this show and any community connected to it, it doesn't exist. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And we will see you in 2018, Doc Lifer. Don't forget, if you're looking to live and lead a documentary life, you need to head over to the documentarylife.com slash your doc life and take a look at our Living Your Documentary Life program will help you craft your lifestyle so that you are able to make the documentary films that you want to make and live the doc life you want to live.